0: Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. And I think, again, this is very much in the spirit of what Peterson himself does. I mean, the biblical lectures are really filled with kind of exploration of this topic of how faith and reason relate. And what Jordan Peterson is trying to do, I think, is to combine faith and reason in a very fruitful way.
1: Hello, everyone, and welcome back for another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. I'm Dr. Mariano Orlandi, Associate Director of the Austin Institute, and today I have the pleasure and honor of hosting quite a timely conversation with Professor Christopher Kaiser. Good morning, Professor.
0: Good morning. Thanks for having me on.
1: Well, welcome back, since I think this is the third time we have you on.
0: I think so. I'm very grateful for that. I enjoy speaking with you. So this is a great opportunity.
1: Yeah, I was about to ask you, Like, I think it's even... The fourth one, if we include the talk on abortion that you gave at the University Catholic Center. And I really hope that this means that you like us, if not as much as we like you and your work, at least enough to spend your precious time with us and with our audience. So for the most distracted, though, in our audience or for the new ones, and I've learned that our show is, keeps growing and our audience keeps growing. Um, would you mind saying just a couple of words about yourself?
0: Sure. I'm a professor of philosophy at Loyola Marymount University in Los Angeles, and I enjoy teaching courses on bioethics and ethics of love and marriage and philosophy of religion. And I have a new book that is just out called Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity, The Search for a Meaningful Life. So I'm really excited about that. I'm looking forward to talking about the book. And that's pretty much me.
1: I should add that this is like your 15th or 16th book.
0: Yeah, something like that. Yeah, (laughs) something like
1: that. And you're not 90 years old, so you're very prolific. The ones that I know about, they're great books. So I would recommend checking, you know, at all the other things that you wrote. But as I said at the beginning, this is a very timely conversation and I actually feel like we are very privileged in hosting this conversation because your book was just published. The publisher is the Word on Fire Institute, and you co-authored this book with Professor Matthew Trusick And if I said that incorrectly, please forgive me, but that's an associate professor at Loyola, where you are also a professor. So as you mentioned, the title of this book is Jordan Peterson, God and Christianity. And our audience will remember that when we learned last time that you were writing this book, the excitement in my voice was pretty clear. And I know there is a lot of excitement in the friends of the Austin Institute that have read Jordan Peterson. Not everyone with the same level of appreciation of everything you said, but is certainly often quoted in our conversation. So we all do think that your book is very important right now. I would also want to add before we get started that I had also the privilege of having an early copy of that book. And so my questions will try to go a little deeper in some of the issues you touch upon, because I could read at least uh, the part that you authored. But so let's start with some preliminary questions. And the first one is, why a book on Jordan Peterson? And where did the idea come from?
0: Well, when I first heard Jordan Peterson's lectures on the Bible, I found them really fascinating. And in that, I'm definitely not alone. If you look at the YouTube numbers for his lectures on scripture, not only are the videos that have attracted an enormous amount of attention, but you have comments in the videos from many people who say things like, I'm an atheist. I thought the Bible was just a bunch of old stories that were completely meaningless. But now, thank you, Dr. Peterson. I can appreciate the insights and the profound wisdom that these stories have for us today. And these sorts of comments from many, many people who describe themselves as atheists I found really fascinating. So in listening to these lectures, I thought that it also would be fruitful and helpful to interact with them in some way. And what I mean is that many of the things that Jordan Peterson talks about in his videos are things that are already found in the Catholic intellectual tradition. So it was pretty clear to me that he was in some sense reinventing the wheel. So a lot of the you know insights he was bringing forward that he discovered, I knew from previous reading, were also found in earlier Catholic thinkers, people like Augustine, people like Origen, people like John Chrysostom. And so that made me even more interested in what Jordan Peterson was saying. So what the book is, is kind of an exploration of Peterson's thought and connecting it up with this broader tradition. And I think that connecting it up with this broader tradition actually is deepening and broadening really the whole project that Peterson's involved in. So I don't think of the book so much as, a critique of him or a rejection of him, but rather as a deepening and extending of his own thought in terms of this very rich and very old Catholic intellectual tradition. So that's sort of what we're doing in the book.
1: Could we say that somehow C. Jordan Peterson so based his reasonings on could call science, right? So evolutionary psychology, psychology, clinical, like E's expertise. Somehow the fact that E reaches the same conclusions of the authors in the Catholic tradition shows us that we should never be afraid of science, as we like saying, that eventually the studies that we conduct on an evidence-based areas actually prove us that some of the things that were revealed or that we got to right reason were correct.
0: Yes, I think that's right. So science and faith are not, in the Catholic view, are not opposed to each other, but rather they're complementary. And so there's no way in which something that's true could ever contradict something else that is true. So there are many truths in science that go beyond what is found in faith. So for instance, in science, we know from physics, right, that force equals mass times acceleration. And that's something that the faith doesn't say anything about. That's a scientific discovery that you might say doesn't have any direct impact on matters of faith. On the other hand, scientists in psychology have pointed out many truths that really do overlap with truths that are found in the faith. So there are many examples of this, but one example would be the importance of forgiveness. There are more than 300 scientific studies of forgiveness And basically what the research indicates is that forgiveness is an incredibly good thing for human beings. It helps them to overcome not only interpersonal conflicts with others, but also you might say within yourself, it helps people to become more healthy. Because when we don't forgive others, basically what happens is we're in an ongoing fight or flight physiology where we're so upset and we're getting ready to strike back at them. And to be in that physiology in the short term is fine. You know, if you get in a physical fight with someone, you have to, you know, get your heart rate up and all that. But to have this go on for days and weeks, months, and even years, that is not healthy for the human body at all. And of course, there is a huge overlap here with faith that at least the Christian faith teaches that we ought to forgive others. Jesus, you know, famously in the Our Father, teaches his disciples to pray. And part of the Our Father is, of course, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And Jesus also, in his life, exemplified forgiveness, even when he was dying on the cross, forgiving those people who were killing him. So this is one of many, many places in which you find an overlap between faith and reason. So reason, uh, psychological science, teaches us that forgiveness is beneficial for human beings, and faith teaches the same thing. So in this book, yeah, I'm exploring the kind of overlaps that are found in Peterson's thought, which is, you're right, based in science, based in his research as a professor of psychology at the University of Toronto. So that's sort of the reason side of things, but it's exploring the overlap with the faith side of things. And I think, again, this is very much in the spirit of what Peterson himself does. I mean, the biblical lectures are really filled with kind of exploration of this topic of how faith and reason relate. And what Jordan Peterson is trying to do, I think, is to combine Faith and reason in a very fruitful way, and as I understand the Catholic tradition, that's really kind of what the Catholic tradition is all about: bringing faith and reason together in a harmonious way.
1: Yes, and thank you. I mean, this is the the study of forgiveness are fascinating, as well as almost all the others that continue to prove that there is some deeper truths, even even the things that we sometimes grasp only by intuition, even if not just reason. Getting to the content of the book, I would like to say that it's divided basically in two main parts and then an addendum or an epilogue where, so the first, you authored the first part, which is dedicated to the biblical series that Jordan Peterson published in a couple of years ago now. And then the second part by authored by your colleague is on the 12 rules for Life. And then you co-authored the third part on Beyond Order. I would be curious to know if you were always in agreement when writing or if writing this book was also a reason for you to have interesting conversations over dinner and like trying to solve your disagreements on it.
0: Yeah, so my co-author is a great guy. Dr. Matthew Petrusik is a wonderful teacher and accomplished scholar. And we really do see eye to eye in many, many different ways. We've had lots of conversations about Jordan Peterson. And I suppose sometimes we have different takes on things. That certainly happens. But I would say in general, we really do have a kind of common view of things. But whenever you write something with a co-author, it's quite challenging because you don't want to put forward anything that you don't both totally agree to. So this book was made much easier in a way by the fact that I wrote you know, the first part, and he read it, of course, and he commented on it, but that's basically you know in my own voice. And then he wrote the second part, and the same thing would be true for that part, that it's in his own voice. The third part, though, we did write together, and basically how that worked is I wrote the first draft, and then he basically liked that and then just added some to the first draft and I liked what he wrote so it was a very easy and fruitful way of writing because whenever you co-author a work it could at least in theory become quite difficult where you know you haggle and you disagree and you go back and forth 20 times over some sentence but I have to say it was a real pleasure to work with Dr. Matthew Petrusik.
1: Great and I'll count on your help on having him on our show too because it would be great to get to know him here. But so let's go to the part where you take full responsibility for, which is the part on the (laughs) biblical series. And you cannot say, you know, I don't know why I wrote that. The first thing that I would like to start from is Jordan Peterson's description of Genesis and its relation to evolution theory. So the question would be, what does Peterson say in that regard? Like, does he think that they are at odds? And how do you comment on that?
0: Well, Peterson is highly committed to evolution. In other words, many of his other works and writings reflect an acceptance of evolutionary theory. And in the Catholic tradition, this is perfectly acceptable. So there are some Catholic authors, like St. Ambrose, who interpret Genesis in, you might say, a more literalistic way. So he would say that the seven days of creation are seven 24-hour periods. But most authors in the Catholic tradition do not interpret Genesis in that way. So I'm thinking of authors like Augustine and Origen and Thomas Aquinas and John Henry Newman and John Paul II, Pope Francis, none of them interpret Genesis in that sort of way. And so for Catholics, at least, we are perfectly free to accept or for that matter to reject evolutionary theory. So if someone accepts evolutionary theory, that is no hindrance or no problem for Catholic interpretations of Genesis. And so this is one of those many ways in which I think that Peterson's thought is really augmented and enhanced by the Catholic view. So the Catholic view is that the stories of Genesis are teaching us very important truths, but the stories of Genesis are not meant to be a scientific exploration of the world. This is not a science textbook. So it would be a little bit like if you read the, I don't know, Chicago Tribune and you read it as if it were... Uh, love poetry. I mean, if you did that, you'd come away and say, "God, this is horrible poetry. I, I'm not moved by this at all, and the imagery is terrible." Well, it's not meant to be love poetry. So, if you read the you know story about the you know Wall Street or whatever, as if it's love poetry, you're making a huge mistake. And the same thing is true of reading Genesis as if it were science. Genesis just isn't doing science, and so it's not failing to do good science. It's doing something else. What is it doing? Well, it's a creation narrative and I think at least to properly understand what Genesis is doing, we need to put that creation narrative in its proper context. And that would be rival stories of creation. So in the ancient world, there were all kinds of stories about how things came to be. And most of those stories involve things like violence among rival gods. So you have Zeus and Kronos getting into a huge fight and battling it out. You have in Babylonian mythology, similar stories of the gods fighting among themselves and then creation arising out of that. And Genesis is meant to be a rival story to those stories. And what Genesis is saying is that ultimately creation is orderly, right? Creation arises from speech, right? God says, let there be light and there's light. So there's no battle among rival gods there. In fact, there are no other gods. There's just one God and God creates through reasonable speech and reasonable speech is orderly. And so one of the key messages of Genesis is that the created order is in order. That is to say that there is a order in nature. There are, you might say, natural laws. And all this is putting forward a very important truth that later people, like scientists, would presuppose in doing their science. But I do think it's still a mistake to read the stories of Genesis as if they are scientific texts they're not aiming to do science and so it's a misreading to read them in that way.
1: Yeah, I think that what you just said echoes what Professor Coon's said on our podcast when we last had him that modern science was able to develop precisely because of the assumption that the world is ordered and so that things would follow and I think you also mentioned in your book the same Plantiga book that Professor Koons adopted during our seminar. So once again, we probably recommend reading that book on where the conflict really lies between religion and science for anyone who is still in doubt that the two can actually work well together. But you mentioned one thing that leads me to the second question I had, which was a very fascinating point I found, which is about human creativity. So you just said, you know, God created the word with his logos, which is word and thought and even embodied person at some point. But then we are also all creative in some way. And so what is the take? Again, Jordan Peterson's take on it and your take on that.
0: Yeah. So Peterson has, I think, very interesting remarks about creativity. And basically what he says is that among human beings, it actually is pretty rare to be truly creative. And what he means by that is that the number of people, for instance, who would create art that other people would want to buy is extremely low, right? In other words, there are very, very few people who can make money off being a musician or off writing poetry. And so real creative genius, you might say, is something that isn't common to every single human being. I mean, all of us can be creative in smaller ways, like, I don't know, create a nice dinner setting or something or cook up a nice meal. But you might say creativity on a very advanced scale, like, again, writing poetry that's published in The New Yorker or something, that is very, very rare. So creativity in the divine sense is something that's even more rare. In fact, it's one of a kind. So creativity in the divine sense is actually causing something to exist out of nothing. That's what's meant by creation ex nihilo, that God is bringing into existence time, space, and matter where previously there were no time, space, and matter. And this is something that actually is been confirmed recently by contemporary science. So cosmologists now know that the universe is about 15 billion years old. So if that's right, 20 billion years ago, there just was no time, and there was no space, and there was no matter. So what happened 15 billion years ago? Well, time, space, and matter came into existence. Now, when humans create things, they don't bring things into existence in that radical way, out of nothing. So if you think of a a musician, a musician takes existing notes, right, C, D, E, F, whatever, sharp, flats, etc., and puts them into a new order, a similar way with a poet. A poet takes existing words and puts them into a new order. Or someone who creates a sculpture takes marble and puts that into a different kind of order. So in all those cases, you're taking something that already exists, right, notes or words or marble, and refashioning them. And that is human creativity. But divine creativity is of a different order. That's where you're beginning with nothing, and out of nothing, making something. Now, how does this fit into Jordan Peterson's thought? Well, there's a kind of dispute that some people think human creativity also extends to creating ethics. In other words, Jean-Paul Sartre, for example, would say that human beings create their own morality, that you give yourself the ultimate principles of ethics. And Peterson disagrees with that. He says that Nietzsche was wrong in thinking that human beings could just create their own moral code.
1: You just mentioned Sartre before and Nietzsche now. Could we say that we combine the two, like we say, Jean-Paul Sartre and Nietzsche in this respect think the same things?
0: That's right. Yeah. So Nietzsche wrote earlier in German, and he basically thought that morality was a human creation. And a later French philosopher in the 20th century, Jean Paul Sartre, had the same sort of view. So he has a book called Existentialism and Human Emotion. And in that book, he basically says that we choose our own ethical principles. So it's not as if they're given to us or part of our human nature, but rather that we create them on our own. And Peterson would disagree with that kind of view. He thinks, in other words, that we don't just create our own morality, we don't just give ourselves the ultimate principles of ethics. And in this, he represents in a new way what in the Catholic tradition is called natural law. So the idea of natural law is that we have within ourselves, you might say already, written into our hearts, the fundamental principles of ethics. For instance, not to murder innocent people, not to take other people's things. And those principles aren't something that we create, but rather that's something that is created in us. And Peterson basically has a similar kind of view. Again, he doesn't use the exact term, natural law, but really what he's getting at is what in the Catholic tradition would be called natural law, the idea that there is objectively a fundamental law of ethics. There are fundamental principles of morality that are true for all people at all times and in all places. And the most fundamental of those principles for Aquinas would be the idea that good is to be done and evil avoided. And Aquinas thought you couldn't help but know that principle, at least implicitly. You may not know know, the verbal formulation of it, but every action we do, we're seeking something that appears to us to be good or avoiding something that appears to us to be evil. So this fundamental principle of natural law is something that is always operative in us, And in his own way, Peterson is coming to a similar insight.
1: And then in another way, we are not in God's way, but we are creative in that we shape ourselves by the things we do, right? So we become the person we want to be. And I think that Jordan Peterson also in his 12 Rules for Life is a lot about that. It's like how to become that kind of person Well, just like start acting as if...
0: That's right. And that's the thing, actually I didn't talk about in the book, but you're right. There's another overlap. So... The idea that agents shape themselves in their activity is a very important principle. And it goes back to Aristotle, but it's also re-articulated by St. John Paul II. This idea that the acting person in acting is not only changing the exterior world, which is true, but also is shaping himself or herself as an agent. And this is a very important insight. It's something that Peterson is very much tapped into. I think part of the reason he can see this is from his many years working as a clinical psychologist. So he could see how people's actions ended up shaping their characters and then their characters end up shaping their destiny. I mean, when you become a person who is, I don't know, addicted to drugs and alcohol, well, that shapes your actions and it shapes how your whole life goes. If by contrast, you become a person who is compassionate, who is just, who is loving, well, that shapes your actions and shapes your relationships and shapes how your overall life goes. So these little everyday actions that we do can seem in the moment as being, you know, not that important, but in a way, they do determine our ultimate destinies.
1: Yes, absolutely. And this is all, you know, all the conversations that we had about virtue, but it is more than that. As you said, it shapes our relationships, it shapes our daily interactions with everyone and with ourselves too. I wanna I am, you know, hoping that, you now sometimes listen, if not regularly to our podcast. If you do, you would know that we recently had an episode on humility with Professor Moskela, And it made me think in your book, I read that we lose our humility in our attempt to become God. And that happens in the Old Testament. So for us, becoming God, right, becoming our own God. Is wrong because also revealed like the nature of creatures. You mentioned that Jordan Peterson has this idea that there is a natural law. So in part you've already answered, but how does he address like how does he how does he explain that it is wrong? It's going to lead us to to the fall.
0: Yeah. So one of the things that Peterson talks about, which I find quite interesting, is he talks about the great poem of John Milton called Paradise Lost. And part of why Satan falls is that Satan tries to be more than he is. He's Lucifer. He's the light bearer. And so he already has a great position, but he wants to be more. He wants to be beyond what he is. And in a similar way, at least as I understand the story of Genesis, Adam and Eve want to become like God. They want to eat the fruit, and that's a way for them to become God. Now, what's the problem with becoming God? Well, we can think about it in terms of the impossibility of fundamentally changing the kind of thing you are. So if I try to become a dog and I get on all fours and I eat dog food and I bark and I do everything like a dog does, none of that would change the reality that I'm not a dog. I'm a human being. But if I tried to become a dog, what would happen is I would lose all the distinctly human good things that I could have enjoyed if I had accepted the reality of being human. So I'm not going to have human friendships. I'm not going to enjoy human knowledge. I'm not going to enjoy human creativity. And if I really try to be a dog, I'm going to miss out on all that. Now, in a similar way, if I try to become God, that also is impossible, right? There's no way I can be uncreated, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-good. That's just not anything that's ever going to happen. It's literally impossible. So what happens to me if I strive to do that? Well, a couple things. One is that I'm going to be incredibly frustrated because I'm never going to reach it. Just like if I really try to become a dog, the only thing that would happen is I would be frustrated in my desires. I'd be like banging my head against the wall trying to do something I simply can't do. But becoming God is even harder to do. So I'm going to be even more frustrated. But I think it's not just a matter of me being frustrated and me being proud and me lording it over other people, it's going to gravely affect my relationships with other people. So we have in history, right, some people who did try to become divine. You know, people who wanted all the power, people who thought they knew everything. And we call those people usually tyrants, right? They want all the power. They think they know everything. They want to rule the world. And we know from long human experience that people who are tyrants usually end up having lives. That are destructive, not only of themselves, but of many, many people around them. I mean, we have many examples, obviously, in the 20th century. And people like Peterson have talked a lot about those examples, right? People like Hitler, people like Stalin, right? They wanted absolute power. And the result of that is that they harmed millions and millions and millions of people. So I think it's much better to accept reality, right? We're human beings, we're created, we have are a certain nature that's not like a dog's nature and also not like God's nature. And I think if we live in reality, that is to be humble, right? To be humble, isn't to pretend that you're, you know, worthless, but rather to be grounded, right? To be in touch with the way things really are. And so, you know, I think we're going to all be better off if we're humble and accept the reality of who we are and allow God to be God. And we accept the reality of being human beings.
1: Yeah, it sounds to me like the answer then is that Jordan Peterson somehow justifies this humility based on the consequences that its lack has. So just look at where it leads. Look at where it leads and you understand that you shouldn't. But you mentioned Milton's work, and I remember reading your book that that was associated also to when you were describing Jordan Peterson and then yourself describing the history of the Tower of Babel and how... We basically lose a sense of where we are, and like we start making a lot of mistakes when we reduce all reality to rationality. So, the utopia of rationalism. And now, if that is true, and if that causes you know problems for someone who believes the added element is okay, accepting that there is a God, what is the added element to rationalism that a non believer can add? So, how basically can a non believer who's listening to us? add to that and say, okay, my reason goes up until here, but I should not reduce reality to this.
0: Yeah, the Tower of Babel, I really appreciate how Peterson interprets that. So he he interprets it as a story about trying to seek utopia and as a story warning us against rationalism. So what is rationalism? It could be defined in different ways, but I think one way to think about it would be that rationalism is the belief that we can totally govern our lives Simply and only using reason, that reason and reason alone is totally sufficient for everything we need to do. I think part of the problem for rationalism is that certain things that we really do need, like love, involve a kind of trusting of the other person that goes beyond what reason and reason alone could show. So think about really any deep friendship or any romantic relationship. There is, at a certain level, Uh, move beyond what reason and reason alone can show. So if, you know, when people get married, they promise to love each other until death do us part. Now, can you know that through reasoning? When I got married almost 30 years ago now, did I know that my wife's going to do that? Well, no, I mean, I didn't know that. I, I couldn't have rational proof of that. That was something in the future. And I had trust that she would do that. And she had trust that I would do that. But in terms of actually knowing in a scientific way that we're going to carry out our vows, neither one of us could really know that. So to have any kind of deep loving relationship, it seems to me, involves a trust. And a trust that goes beyond what you can show simply on the basis of reason and certainly on the basis of science. And so rationalism in a way is a mistaken trust in reason. So reason is good and we can't trust reason, but it's a mistake to think that reason is totally sufficient for everything that we need in human life. And in particular, I think with relationships, we need an element of trust. And that's true for relationships among human beings, but it's also true for relationship between human beings and God. And so just as a human being can reveal to us things about themselves that we couldn't know simply through reasoning, so too in the Catholic tradition, God reveals things about himself, especially through Jesus, that we couldn't know simply through reasoning and through philosophy.
1: I hope that the audience has the same reactions that I have, but I'm just fascinated by every detail. And I, I mean, I invite everyone to watch Jordan Peterson's lecture that I did watch years ago and about the story of Cain and Abel and Noah and Abraham. But also what you say and what you add to that is just so incredible and every single detail. If I may, I wanted to read a passage that I really liked that is about suffering and our responsibility in it, which I think combines very well with the talk we had on the existence of God and suffering. So the passage is this. God is always unfailingly loving, but we are not. And when we are not loving God, we cause ourselves to suffer. God is akin to the sun, which always admits light and heat. But the light and heat of the sun, considered as it is, can be experienced by us in radically different ways, depending upon our own condition. If we are seated beside the pool, sipping a soda, and jumping in for a swim whenever we feel a little too hot, the rays of the sun feel wonderful to us. By contrast, on the same summer afternoon, if our car runs out of gas in the desert, or in Texas, and we have to walk 15 miles to the gas station down a dirty road, the light and heat of the sun feel oppressive to us. The sun has not changed but our relationship to the sun has changed. So too, God's love is everlasting. But when we are in the desert of alienation from God, we experience God as wrathful and punishing. If God is the ultimate source of happiness, then when we separate ourselves from God, when we hide from God, we undermine our own happiness. So the comment I'm looking for here, what is the kind of happiness we are describing here?
0: Yes, that's a good question. There's many different kinds of happiness that we can talk about. And we can distinguish, for example, if we follow Robert Spitzer's view, between happiness of bodily pleasure, like the happiness you get from drinking alcohol, and happiness of competition with others, like the happiness of, you know, getting a raise at work or getting promoted or something like that. And then the deeper kinds of happiness, he says, are about love love of other people, and love of God. So I would say that the best and deepest kind of human happiness that we can have is a kind of happiness that involves love. And I would say, in particular, the love of God. And the reason for that is that our human mind is always seeking the truth. But God is the first truth, the ultimate truth. And our human will is always seeking the good. And God is, at least if Aquinas is right, perfectly good in every respect. And most of all, our hearts are always seeking love. And on Aquinas' view, God is perfect love, the love of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, loving each other perfectly forever. So if this view is right, the human person, you might say, is created in order to find fulfillment in love of God, in knowing God in relating to God. And so if someone detaches from that, if someone rejects that, well, then they're going to be missing something that is really essential for them to have perfect happiness. It's in that context, I think, that it's important to think about the way that God's punishments work. So some punishments work in a very artificial way. So if a police officer pulls you over and writes you a ticket for $300 for running red light, There's no real connection between the crime, you know, running a red light and getting a $300 ticket, right? It could have been a $100 ticket. It could have been a day in jail. It could have been a bunch of things that could have punished you. But by contrast, if God really is the source of our happiness, if we separate ourselves from God, well, what we're doing is we're separating ourselves from the source of happiness. So it would be a little bit like, to use a different analogy, if we're at a campfire, And it's a cold night and we're all around the campfire. It's nice and warm there. If I separate myself from the light and the heat of the campfire and I move out into the darkness, well, the natural consequence of that is that I get cold and it's dark and I can't see and things are not going well. And in a similar way, on Aquinas' view, at least, God just is the source of perfect life, perfect truth, perfect love, perfect goodness. And so if we separate ourselves from that, we are as it were, punishing ourselves. We get into the darkness, we get into the cold, and you might say with Augustine that the punishment for sin is sin. That is to say, sin is its own punishment, because what sin is, is just separating ourselves from God.
1: You're just making me think of Dante, and I can only say that in Italian, but like the first verse is, Nel mezzo del cammin di nostra vita mi ritrovai in una selva oscura che la diritta via era smarrita. So how he he found himself in the dark because he had lost the straight way forward. Again, a lot of things that I would like to talk with you about, like envy, the role of envy as the source of every sin and the way in which Abraham is a hero and we're all called to be heroes. But I will leave all this content to the people who are a reader to read in the book. I might even, I will suggest this book for a, a new reading group that we will start during the fall. And I think it would be a great book to read together here at the Austin Institute. Before letting you go, I would like to ask you something about a parallel between Jordan Peterson and C.S. Lewis that you made. And I see that the figure of C.S. Lewis comes back and it's like recently, I mean, everyone talks about it, everyone reads him. Sora Bamari in his last book talks about C.S. Lewis' at length. I think it's a whole chapter dedicated to C.S. Lewis. So if you could say a couple of words about this comparison, what would distinguish them, and yeah, whatever you want to add on it.
0: Yeah, I think that Lewis and Peterson actually have quite a bit in common. So both of them are professors at distinguished universities, Peterson, of course, at the University of Toronto, and Lewis at Cambridge. But they didn't confine themselves simply to academic study within their area of expertise. So Peterson, of course, has done these biblical lectures. He's addressed all kinds of important issues of free speech. And Lewis, in a similar way, extended himself way beyond his scholarly domain into writing best-selling stories like the Chronicles of Narnia, and also a wide number of books that pertain to Christian wisdom. So maybe most famously, Mere Christianity. And so I think they kind of are interesting in that way. They both were extremely popular They both were able to do express the truths of the Christian faith in a very winning way, in a very persuasive way. So I think they really do have a lot in common. One big difference, though, is that Peterson, at least at this point, seems to think of the Christian story as ultimately a myth. That is to say that it is very significant and teaching us important truths, but he's not really committed to the idea that it's true. Whereas Lewis, of course, thought that the myth became fact, that this amazing story wasn't just a story, but actually touched reality. And so in that, they're quite different. Now, Peterson's story is not yet complete, so who knows where he'll go in the future. And he certainly seems like someone who is very open to discussing these ideas and thinking them through. And I really respect him for that. I respect him for being open to learning from other people. It seems pretty clear in in his discussions with people that he really is listening. And he really is trying to gain greater insight. And for me, that's wonderful. And that's something that I try to do also. And I think Peterson does that extremely well. So anyway, we don't know yet how the story will end, but I'm very optimistic that he'll continue to grow and learn and develop. And that's something that we can all do as we all try to move forward towards, you know, deeper understanding and wisdom.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And a honest search, right? Seeking truth honestly, will lead you to what is true, whatever it is. Maybe, you know, maybe we will change our mind. Never know. Just keep looking for the right answers. One thing maybe as less related to the book, more related to the person, I appreciated a lot, you know, seeing that there was a book on him and on Christianity written by someone who doesn't necessarily want to be, a, you know, in the middle of controversies just for the sake of controversies. It's a scholarly book that adds on something that, Peterson pointed out, but why do you think that Peterson has been the object of so much hate? I mean, not only what are the facts that caused it, but why do you think there is such a rejection in the world for his search, which seems to be just a honest search?
0: Yeah, I think that Jordan Peterson is someone who is often misunderstood. So I've heard him in many different interviews where the person interviewing him really does not seem to listen very carefully to what Jordan Peterson is saying. So the person will ask a question and Jordan Peterson will answer. And then the interviewer will recast and really misunderstand what Peterson is saying, right? And so the interviewer will say things like, so what you're saying is that, you know, women just aren't as smart as men. And, you know, Peterson like looks over like, no, (laughs) that's not what I'm saying. And this happens kind of over and over again. And I think part of that is that Sometimes when people perceive another person as being on the opposite team, they sometimes don't really listen very carefully to what that person's saying, because in their mind, they're getting ready to formulate their response and their critique. And so they don't really engage and really listen very carefully. And so I think that really is a very large part of why Peterson has generated this kind of controversy, that he will say things and then... The people that are listening really don't, given the benefit of the doubt, they really don't listen carefully. They are really looking for a kind of trouble in what he's saying. And so, unfortunately, I think that's really kind of unfair. I mean, I get that not everyone is going to agree with his views. I don't agree with all of his views. But I do think that if you're going to have a fruitful conversation, it's essential that you actually listen and try to understand what this other person is saying. Because if you don't do that, then in a way, what is really the point of having this person around at all? I mean, is it just to introduce a kind of straw man figure that you can critique and set on fire? And I don't think, again, if the goal is to have a fruitful conversation and to grow in understanding, I don't think battling straw man figures is the best way to do that.
1: I see what you're saying. And could we also say that this unwillingness to listen comes from the desire that we actually have not to change our mind?
0: I think that's right. I think that's right. Because if you're really going to listen to someone, especially if you're going to listen to them in order to gain greater insight, it seems to me you do have to be open to the possibility that you might be wrong about one or more things you believe. And if you're talking about issues that are incredibly important to you, then that can be kind of challenging. And Peterson certainly is talking about issues of great importance. He's not talking about trivialities. And so I think people can be challenged by that and not be open really to a careful attending to what he's actually saying. So that can, yeah, generate misunderstandings and things. So I'm very glad that he's speaking out the way he is and that he's talking about these important matters. But I do think that some of his interlocutors do him a disservice by seeking, really not seeking to understand him, but seeking really to destroy him, to try to find, you know, where he's wrong, to only critique him. And again, I'm not saying that everything he says is right. I disagree with him about a number of things. But I do think that before you reject something, reject someone's view, it's really important for you to understand the view first.
1: So for those of in the audience that want to know where you disagree, a very good way to understand that is just buy the book. And the link is going to, be with our, going to be linked to our podcast. So they, they can do it from there. Again, published by the Word and Fire Institute, co-authored. And again, I will count on your help to have the second author on their show too. In 10, set 10, 20 second, a good reason for our audience to buy your book?
0: If people like reading the book as much as I enjoyed writing it, then I think they'll get a lot of enjoyment out of it. And for me, at least, it was a, a great occasion to gain greater insight into not only Peterson's ideas, but also the great themes and subjects that he is talking about. So I really enjoyed writing the book, and I hope people enjoy reading it.
1: Thank you very much, Professor. Thank you. Again, we might adopt this book for our reading group. So for those of you who are interested in joining the reading group and are in Austin, I want to pass, come by the Austin Institute every other Friday and read together. You you might want to subscribe to that one and read Professor Kayser altogether. For now, I want to thank you again for your time. Keep writing.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. And we'll see you soon. Sounds great. Thank you all for listening to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. Please share it with your friends. Please give us a five-star rating, and please donate so we can do even more.